Well, please take a seat. Uh, my name is Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to welcome Paul Tresco here. He's going to be preaching here. We have some uh, supporters here. He's going to make some sports mm. jokes, so it's good that you're replicating that here with <laughs> us uh, this, this morning. Um, he's been here longer than I have, actually, so he should really just introduce himself. But for those who haven't mm. met you before, um, you're a, a humanities teacher at uh, Vancouver College. Mm -hmm. Tell us, do people comment more on your uh, good teaching, mm. your tall height, mm. or your really deep voice? Ooh. Uh... <laughs> Probably the height. They go for the, the height. obvious okay. one. They go and maybe I'm not that good of a teacher. Okay. <laughs> well, let's see how you get on today. We are grateful to have you with us to, 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 to listen to what uh, you've prepared for us. And I'm glad that um, you're able to serve us in this way. So let me pray for you briefly. Sure. Lord, we're grateful for, for, for Paul, what you've done in his life, and the ways in which you've worked in it and brought him to yourself, brought him from darkness to life, from um, light, um, from, from, from darkness to light, and from death to life and uh, the ways in which you've worked in his life. We pray that as he speaks, uh, that you would give him a sense of your, your leading, of your peace, your spirit's work in his life, and trust that your spirit will speak to us um, as, as he, he preaches uh, to us today. So we lift him up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. As Lloyd has just said, my name is Paul Tresco. For those of you who haven't met me, uh, and this morning I have the privilege of walking us through this passage from St. Paul's, different Paul, he's the saint, from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church that we have just had read. Now, usually when I'm up here, I'm leading worship, so this morning my task is a little different. I have a lot more words to say, but I don't have to sing them, and I don't have to play guitar while I say them, so hopefully I will get on all right. Now, when I was asked to preach, I was told I could choose any passage from the Bible to preach on, and that was frankly intimidating and a lot to choose from. But I was reading one morning, and this passage from 2 Corinthians stood out as a timely message for our church. It was a message that I know I, at least, needed to hear many times in all the difficulties that the past year has brought. So the big idea that I'm hoping that you'll take away from this passage is this. God invites us to participate in reconciling all things to himself. God invites us to participate in reconciling all things to himself. Now, that may seem pretty cosmic, it may seem pretty abstract, so we'll begin by examining the two basic points that St. Paul makes in this passage. The first being that God is reconciling the world to himself, and we'll talk about what the term reconciliation means in this context. And the second point being that we are called to be ministers of that reconciliation, or to participate in it. And I'm going to use those terms kind of interchangeably, to be ministers of that reconciliation, or to participate in it. Uh, we'll conclude by thinking practically about how this actually looks in day-to-day -day life. But let's begin in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of this piece of scripture. Would your Holy Spirit be speaking to us throughout this morning? Would you grant us further understanding of the calling that you've placed on our lives, of the reconciling work you are doing in creation? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's look at the first few verses of our passage again, verses 17 through 20. St. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So as I mentioned, in this passage, St. Paul wants to communicate two incredible truths to the Corinthian church. Uh, The first being that God has reconciled the world, literally in Greek, the entire cosmos to himself through Christ. And the second being that we are called to be ministers of that reconciliation or to participate in it. We're going to mostly talk about the second point today, uh, but let's briefly take a moment to dwell on the first. St. Paul's first point is the heart of the Christian gospel. We were enemies to God, but now we are friends. We were cut off from God, but now we are brought near. We were excluded from the heavenly community, but now we are destined for eternal communion with God. This is the good news that we have just celebrated with claps and hoots and hollers that we celebrate every Sunday after the confession. God has not counted our trespasses against us. Our sin is canceled out. Our debt is paid through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And we now, this day, have peace with God when we turn to him to receive forgiveness for our sins. This is what reconciliation means in this context. And this message is truly cosmic, extending to all people across time and space. It even somehow mysteriously includes creation or the natural world itself, which as St. Paul writes in Romans 8, groans in anticipation of the day on which God will complete this work of reconciliation. Now, what I've just described, we could think of as vertical reconciliation, reconciliation between God and humanity. There is another element of reconciliation that we could describe as horizontal, that which takes place between individuals or groups of people. And this horizontal reconciliation is what we're more accustomed to talking about in our society through efforts like Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, in the Christian faith, these two aspects of reconciliation are deeply intertwined, a truth that is beautifully symbolized in the coming together of the vertical and the horizontal in the shape of the cross, as I am far from the first person to point out. Today, however, I'm going to mostly discuss the vertical dimension, reconciliation between God and humanity, for the sake of time and given that it seems to be the focus of what St. Paul is writing about here. Yet, I would encourage you all, if you haven't already, to listen to the sermon, Residential Schools and the Gospel of Reconciliation, that was given by Brett Landry at Christ City recently and was recommended by our pastor, Preston, a few weeks ago. Uh, Brett's message speaks to the horizontal aspect of reconciliation, so reconciliation between different groups of people and how it relates specifically to the terrible legacy of residential schools in Canada. So while I'm going to be focusing today on reconciliation between God and humanity, uh, it's important for us to keep in mind that God's vision of reconciliation is holistic. It includes our relationship with, relationships with one another and our relationship with his creation as well. So this is the first point that St. Paul makes in this passage. God has reconciled all things to himself in Christ. And his second point is the one that we're going to focus on more today and that we're going to turn to now. And while we may have heard it so many times that it's become familiar, 
I think we should find the second point even more surprising than the first. St. Paul's second point is this. God's plan for completing this work of reconciliation is us. The church is the plan. We are the plan. We see this clearly in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5. St. Paul says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We are the plan. We, the church, have been entrusted to bear the news of the gospel to the world. And again, many of us have heard this message so many times that it seems familiar, but it's quite surprising when we look at it with fresh eyes. God does not turn to this plan out of desperation, as a Hail Mary that he is praying will work. This is not like Princess Leia sending off her message with R2-D2 and C-3PO because there was no other option available. There were other options. Presumably, God could have sent an angel to deliver this news in a moment of supernatural revelation, leaving each individual to choose whether to accept God's offer of reconciliation in the face of this overwhelming proof of God's existence and goodwill. Or maybe Jesus could have stuck around and delivered the news a bit more widely himself rather than ascending to the Father. Perhaps sometimes we think that this is what God should have done. But instead, God chose to use us, the often ordinary, often hesitant, often half-hearted people of his church as the ambassadors of this message. So the question is why? Why would God choose to use us for the use us for this purpose. Up to this point, he himself has been the main one doing the work, coming to earth, dying, rising. Why not just finish the job by spreading the word himself? It's like Michael Jordan, after having put the team on his back and scoring 50 points, passing the ball to a player off the bench to take the final shot. Those of us who watched the documentary The Last Dance know that that is not in MJ's character. But God is not like Michael Jordan or like me, or you. God invites ordinary people into his redeeming and reconciling work. He chooses to use our weakness to deliver the good news rather than carry it out in his strength. And looking at the Bible as a whole, this is always how God chooses to work. This is in line with his character. He sends Moses, a man afraid of public speaking, to convince Pharaoh to release the Israelites. He raises up David, the smallest of all of Jesse's sons, to be the greatest king in Israel's history. And he chooses Mary, a young, unknown girl from a backwater town, to be the ultimate bearer of his good news. I mean, St. Paul himself was hardly the obvious candidate for apostleship, given his violent history. Therefore, in a way, it's not surprising that God chooses to use you and chooses to use me as his ministers of reconciliation. He delights in using his people to carry out his purposes, offering each of us a role to play in the great story of redemption. Unlike Michael Jordan, God always makes the extra pass. (laughs) To move away from cheesy sports metaphors, we can see this truth demonstrated beautifully at the beginning of The Divine Comedy, a poem written by 14th century poet Dante Alighieri. The poem begins with the protagonist, Dante, lost in a dark wood, symbolizing the darkness of sin and separation from God. 
He's trapped there and he's about to give up hope, but the Virgin Mary, looking down from heaven, uh, spots him and realizes that he is in trouble. She goes to St. Lucia and tells her that Dante needs help. St. Lucia then in turn goes to Beatrice, a woman Dante knew in his life, but who has now died and is in heaven, and she tells her that Dante needs help. Beatrice then goes and tells the dead poet Virgil, Dante's literary hero. And then finally, Virgil himself goes down into hell to set Dante on the long road to paradise and his ultimate union with God, which is the poems, the climax of the poems narrative. So why this game of divine telephone? Why does this message go from Mary to Lucy to Beatrice and finally to Virgil before any action is taken? Is heaven a bureaucratic nightmare filled with emails that never reached the person they were intended for, forwarded on in an endless loop of inefficiency? Or perhaps we Protestants might think that this is merely a result of Dante's unreformed Catholicism. <laughs> All of these saints getting in the way of my personal relationship with Jesus. This is what the Protestant Reformation was all about. Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating that we should start praying to saints again, or else I wouldn't be invited back to preach. But I do think that what Dante is showing us something, that Dante is showing us something about the Christian life that we don't want to miss. Regardless of whether you're just exploring faith or you've been a practicing Christian for some time, I imagine that if I asked you what brought you to where, you're, where you are today in your relationship with God, you'd likely say that the journey involved people. Perhaps there's just one or two people you'd highlight in describing this journey, a parent who brought you to church and modeled the Christian life for you growing up, or a friend who invited you along to a youth group or to Alpha for the first time. And while these may be the main characters in the story, there are probably countless others, some of them unnoticed or forgotten, who had a role to play. A coworker who you didn't talk to much, but you admired something about their faith. Or a Christian who's now dead, but their book or life story was a major source of inspiration. Or a friend who pointed you to God during a difficult time. Or someone who, without even knowing God themselves, reflected to you something about his character when that's what you needed or even just your fellow congregants who show up to church every week and unconsciously inspire you to do the same. If that's you, then like Mary and Lucia and Beatrice and Virgil did for Dante, these are the people who had some role to play in reconciling you to God, the, peop the people through whom God worked to bring you to himself. Now again, God doesn't need to work in this way but he seems to involve all of these people in his redemptive work because he delights in giving them a part to play in the story. And this is a beautiful part of his character. God freely chooses to share, to cooperate, to invite others in as he goes about his work of salvation. This is what the ministry of reconciliation in action looks like. God making the extra pass and pass and pass until his reconciling work is not dissimilar to the brand of basketball played by the Golden State Warriors during their recent legendary championship runs. <laughs> Last sports reference of the sermon, I promise. So we've looked at St. Paul's two main points in this passage, the first being God has reconciled us to himself in Christ, and the second being that God then calls us to participate in this reconciling work. We focused on the second point and seen that it shows us something about the character of God, that he delights in drawing us into his plans and purposes. I want to conclude by thinking about what this means for our lives. 
and briefly considering what it looks like practically. First, our call to participate in God's reconciliation means that our lives are deeply meaningful, that our actions, whether big or small, really matter. And this is an exciting and beautiful truth. In an age where so much can feel meaningless or pointless, St. Paul tells us that God wants to work through us in a meaningful way. When we're tempted to believe that what we do with our time is unimportant in the face of death or injustice or the eventual heat death of the universe, St. Paul tells us that our choices today can be part of Christ's restoration and reconciliation of the cosmos in the age to come. And I know that for me, that was an important truth to hold on to, particularly throughout this last year. On those dark winter days when the pandemic was raging, and we had so little to look forward to, reminding myself that God can work in and through my life for his ultimate purposes was sometimes what got me out of bed and into work in the morning. This is a purpose and meaning for our lives that endures, one that is bigger than just seeking our own happiness or achieving our own goals, both worthy endeavors, but ones that, as we now know, can be interrupted, and as we've long known, can not always go according to plan. Regardless of whether we get the promotion at work or find the spouse we've been looking for, we are still called, we are still called to participate in God's reconciling work. So I hope that you'll receive St. Paul's message here as a reminder and a truth to hang on to in good and hard times. God wants to use your life in meaningful ways for the sake of his coming kingdom. He wants to use your life in meaningful ways for the sake of his coming kingdom. Yet perhaps when you hear that we're called to bear God's message of reconciliation to the world, this doesn't sound like good news. Perhaps this only sounds like an overwhelming responsibility. Perhaps you think that to live up to this task, you need to work on your evangelism elevator pitch or become more likable and charismatic in order to share the gospel more effectively or take up more volunteer work or stick some kind of Christian bumper sticker on the back of your car and it all feels like too much. Now on one hand, I think that it can be good to have a healthy sense of the weight and responsibility that we've been given as God's ministers of reconciliation to question ourselves and to ask how this vocation influences our words and our actions in our day-to-day -day life. But on the other hand, I think that our understanding of what counts as being a minister of reconciliation can sometimes be too small, leading us to believe that fulfilling this vocation requires us to fit into one or two predetermined molds, the mold of gifted public speaker and sharer of the gospel, or the mold of NGO worker who travels to exciting places and does exciting things for the common good. Now, of course, sharing the gospel with our words or working for an NGO can be legitimate and beautiful expressions of participating in God's reconciling work. But too often we elevate a few ways of living out the Christian life, thinking that once we do that thing, we'll be ministering God's reconciliation at the expense of whatever job or relationship or task of daily living actually lies before us. How do we live in a way that reflects and proclaims God's reconciliation in our particular careers, or in our relationships with family members, or as we run errands in our neighborhood? For many of us, these are the spaces in which God has called us to be his ministers of reconciliation. 
Tish Harrison Warren captures this truth beautifully in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, which I'd highly recommend if you're interested in diving more into this idea. She writes, we are part of God's big vision and mission, the redemption of all things, through the earthy craft of living out our vocation, hour by hour, task by task. I want to do the big work of the kingdom, but I have to learn to live it out in the small tasks before me. The mission of God in the daily grind. In short, we don't all need to become the next Billy Graham to participate in God's reconciliation. But we do need to thoughtfully and prayerfully consider how God may want to use us in the spheres we find ourselves in. One example that comes to mind for me of a person who reflects God's character in a place we might not think of is my boss at the swimming pool where I work as a lifeguard in the summers. When I was first hired, I remember him saying to me, I know that for most people who work for me, lifeguarding isn't going to be their career. It'll just be a part-time job that they work for a few years. But my goal is to make it the best part-time job that they ever have. And in the last few years of working for him, he has been true to his word. I have seen him spend hours on the phone with people who have just been hired, helping them navigate the bureaucracy of the Vancouver Parks and Recreation Board. I've seen him help people find coverage for their shifts so that they can get away for a vacation, or help people find extra shifts when they're in financial need. I've seen him make our workplace somewhere that people actually want to be through the kindness and respect that he shows his employees. Now, he doesn't have to do any of this, right? He could just fulfill his contractual obligation to keep the pool running and have a bunch of unhappy staff members. This is the way that a lot of other pools in the city work. But he goes out of his way to make the people who work for him feel valued and cared for. And the, the kindness that he's shown me on several occasions has moved me to feel grateful not only to him, but to God for provi providing for me through him, as I suspect it has done for others. The way he treats his staff reflects to us, even if only in a small way, something of the character of God who values and cares for his children enough to reconcile them to himself. And this is the calling of the church, to reflect and proclaim God's reconciliation in places as unlikely as a run-down old swimming pool. I want to leave you uh, with just one final thought on how we participate in God's reconciling work. Just after the passage we've been looking at today, St. Paul describes a few specific ways in which he himself has lived out this vocation. He lists a number of them, all of which would be good to consider here, but for the sake of time, I want to focus just on the first. St. Paul writes of his ministry, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. The first way in which St. Paul suggests he practices his ministry of reconciliation is not with eloquent words or with miraculous healings, but simply by enduring. Simply by continuing on in his faith and his ministry despite hardships. Now, it may sound strange to suggest that we participate in God's reconciliation of all things by enduring, but when I read this, my first thought was that I had been ministered to by you, by the members of St. Peter's Fireside, throughout this past year in precisely this way. 
When we were finally able to host in-person services, I remember looking around, seeing other people in the congregation, and thinking to myself, okay, if that person and that person and that person are still here, coming to church, saying the words of the liturgy, following Jesus after this difficult season, maybe there is something in this Christianity thing after all. Maybe what Jesus did actually matters. Even when we were 10 feet apart, not, able allowed, not allowed to talk to each other with only the top half of our faces showing, seeing that others still thought it was worthwhile to spend their Sunday morning at church made the gospel more believable to me. Heck, even seeing people pop up in the YouTube chat when we were still doing online services was an encouragement. The endurance of this community in faith and people's willingness to gather to worship the risen Christ, even in less than ideal circumstances, has encouraged me to press on in my own faith, my own reconciliation to God. When we gather as a community, week in and week out, in good times and in bad, we minister Christ's reconciliation to one another with our words, with our actions, and sometimes even just with our presence. So I hope that you hear that as an encouragement this morning. God wants to use your life in big ways, in his redemption of all things, the church, the world, the cosmos. But he can also use even small acts of faithfulness, small acts of endurance. So may you know today that we have been given peace with God in Christ and have been entrusted with a message Great joy for all people.